the biggest myth is that employees are not independent contractors. Independent contractors are not employees. Does hybrid work complicate this in any way? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the biggest issue with hybrid work right now is that many organizations have certain policies and procedures that apply to in-office employees and apply to remote employees, but they haven't exactly accounted for when those two worlds meet. Where do you think AI is going to play the biggest role in your world and in remote work law? Hello, heroes of hybrid work. I'm Jenny Mobius and an SVP at Sketa, where I'm lucky I get to help organizations bring their hybrid workspaces to life every day. Part of that mission includes bringing you the latest data and insights from today's top voices, researchers, and business leaders so you can make the best decisions for your business. On today's pod, Tara Vazdani, principal lawyer and founder of Remote Law Canada, a law firm specializing in civil litigation, employment law, and remote work, shares the top legal implications associated with remote work, the importance of having proper hybrid work policies and procedures, the need to distinguish between the independent contractor and the employee, how to protect yourself as an employee of record, and the biggest myths when it comes to hybrid work. Hey, Tara. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the Heroes of Hybrid Work. We are very excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited about our discussion. Yeah, me too. So what made you start Remote Law Canada? And honestly, like, what does it mean to specialize in remote work law? So it's a really good question. Um, you know, when I was starting the firm, I was sort of like any other lawyer. I was practicing civil litigation and employment law at a firm downtown Toronto, but I always had this passion for employment law. And so Initially, I had sort of started to see this rise of digital nomad workers. Mm -hmm. I was really just at home one day watching an episode of The Economist, and I saw this couple that was traveling and spending one month working in Japan and another month working in Australia and sort of moving all over the place. As an employment lawyer, I questioned how the legislation could address this type of worker. And sure enough, the legislation hadn't caught up. It was sort of, you know, like, like happened in COVID. It was an emergency situation where, you know, we'll sort of interpret the law in a certain way that will deal with this one-off employee. Mm -hmm. But as I dug deeper, I saw that it wasn't a one-off employee and it was really this space that was expanding um, exponentially pre-COVID. So you had the situation where more and more workers were working as nomads and more and more workers were moving across the globe or even just working outside of the jurisdiction of their employer. And we were in situations where we didn't know how employment law would respond. Eventually, I got into the space and I started to see that there was this huge lacuna where these organizations didn't have the correct policies and procedures in place to actually help them implement remote work and make it so that they were following the correct legislation or the correct regulations that applied to that situation. So, you know, I just sort of came in and said, well, how can I help? And I think that the key was really helping them to draft enforceable employment agreements, you know, dealing with the independent contractor versus employee situation, mm -hmm. um, drafting enforceable remote work policies, health and safety legislation, not legislation, health and safety um, checklists 
as well as many of the other sort of key documents to help them legally operate a remote, flexible, or hybrid team. That's so interesting. So how did this kind of change in the pandemic? I imagine that it kind of exploded for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it's amazing the way that this intersect sort of happened where I started the firm and within less than a year, we were in the global pandemic. So when we went into the pandemic, that's when some of those remote emergency situations happened. So tons of organizations went remote or flexible or hybrid, but they didn't have the proper policies and procedures. And so you saw, for example, a huge rise in constructive dismissal claims as the pandemic went on. So a constructive dismissal happens when the circumstances of your employment change such that you can interpret that either your job duties and responsibilities have permanently changed or a toxic work environment has been created and you can resign. With respect to remote work, what had happened is by allowing a lot of employees to work remotely, but not having a policy in place that said that they could recall the employee at their will, the moment they tried to recall the employee, the employee could argue that a new term of their employment was that they could work remotely. And if they were recalled to work, they could treat it as a constructive dismissal and they were entitled to their termination or severance pay. So that was one of the ways that, you know, remote work really shifted um, in the pandemic. It was sort of inspiring and empowering these employees to now use remote work as an actual term of their employment, not just something that the employer could sort of give and take away. Other things that happened is, of course, as those companies became more distributed or flexible or hybrid, they started to consider some of the long-term impacts of operating in that way. So you saw a big rise in the use of tech uh, in a lot of organizations and, for example, collaboration tools. Mm-hmm. And with that comes drafting remote work policies and procedures, privacy, cybersecurity policies and procedures to help address some of those things that, you know, previously didn't exist in the remote workspace or in the non-remote workspace. Um, So there was just this, this big shift. And I think it was really about having policies and procedures to respond to those shifts. Yeah, no, it is fascinating to me because I've always been in the startup world. And so, you know, things are looser in the startup world, but everybody in our world is also realizing that we need to set better expectations. We need to communicate better. We can't just have this be like a come in whenever, you know, stay whenever, you know, there needs to be some, some rules around things. And so that's why I think your story fascinates me so much because I haven't really been involved in the enterprise world as much as the startup world. Um, and I think startups can actually really benefit from learning from you. You, you mentioned a few of the cases that you see the most when it comes to remote work. Are there any other examples that you can think of that just keep coming up over and over again? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think the most uh, prevalent sort of experience that's happened for organizations throughout the pandemic and well after is really this distinguishing between the independent contractor and the employee. And when should I hire someone as an independent contractor and an employee? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that has probably been the most vital uh, conversation for all organizations that we've had over the last several years. And really it's because the law says that it doesn't matter what the written agreement says. It can say that this person is an independent contractor. 
if certain factors are met showing that it is in fact an employee employer relationship, you're going to end up in a situation where when you let them go, you're not going to be able to get away from having to pay termination pay or severance pay. And so you really need to understand your employer obligations and when you're engaging this type of worker, if you're meeting some of those requirements to indeed enforce an independent contractor or employee relationship. And then to go further, when you're dealing with certain employees that want to travel globally and outside of your jurisdiction, you would need to have that conversation because there's a lot of tax implications that come with having employees working in different jurisdictions, especially for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that conversation has been very, very popular. And I found that when I was at the running remote conference in April and I had spoken about the top legal implications associated with remote work, that was the conversation that everyone sort of wanted to have because a lot of these employers that are hiring globally are in this situation where they're struggling with whether or not they should hire this person or this company as an independent contractor or a set of employees. And so to take it a step further, probably one of the most interesting cases we had um, had to do with an employer of record, which is lately what a lot of these global organizations that are sort of struggling with hiring ICs versus employees are using to meet a lot of their obligations. So rather than the company themselves employing this individual, they're using an employer of record that is in their jurisdiction, being the individual's jurisdiction, to hire and to meet their termination and severance requirements etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so the very interesting case that we had last year was yeah, a, it, it was a global employer of record who had contracted out one of their employees as they typically do to this third party client. The third party client had engaged the employee for a fixed term. So it was a fixed term on an ongoing basis. The employee basically was engaged for year after year to provide services to this third party. In the final year, the employee was relieved from its duties, so terminated Mm -hmm. by the third-party client. However, the employee was terminated about eight months prior to the end of that contract term. Okay. Now, what that means in Ontario at the very least is that rather than having to pay an employee termination or severance pay in accordance with legislation, which is typical in every jurisdiction, it's about one week per year when Mm -hmm. you terminate an employee. In Ontario, if you terminate an employee on a fixed term contract, you actually have to pay them out the balance of the contract. So now you had an employee that was terminated eight months early by the third party and not the employer of record. Who's on the hook for the termination pay? The employer of record. The employee was making about $10,000 a month. And so we were dealing with a lawsuit where the EOR was on the hook for $80,000 in termination pay. Of course, the EOR's question to me is, well, what do we do in this situation? We're not the ones that terminated the employee. The third party is the one that terminated the contract. Well, you're the employer of record. And so you're on the hook for the termination pay. Wow. And so it definitely would have been a great case to take to trial. Of course, we try to settle things quicker. And so we ended up entering into a settlement. So there is no precedent. But what we were able to do after is redraft the employer of records policies so that 
it included a clause that if the third party client terminates an employee early on a fixed term contract, they are liable for a portion of the pay that the EOR has to pay as severance pay. So we sort of created these agreements between the employer of record and the third party client to offload some of the liability to the third party client. Now, what does that do? It also makes the third party client think twice about having or hiring an employer of record. Sure. So those are some of the things that we've been dealing with, but that was a very interesting case, especially because uh, the popularity of employers of record lately has really, really gone through the roof. Yeah. Having a guest over your workplace can take a lot of preparation. Okay, great. Well, let, let's meet at our office. Oh, and uh, when, when you come, make sure you go to the south entrance, not the north entrance. Bring your ID and, and ask you on it. you got to fill out all the paperwork. And uh, yeah. Oh, okay. But we thought it should be a bit easier. With our new visitor management tool, your guests will get an email with all the information they need. Then they just scan the QR code to check in and check out. It's that simple. Skeda. Hybrid work. People first. Do you think then that, I mean, pretty obvious too, that companies just really don't know how to protect themselves um, in this remote world? They just don't know what they don't know, especially companies that are newer to this. I know remote world's been around forever, but hybrid work, right, really picked up in the pandemic. So would you say that companies just need to get more educated on exactly how the law works wherever they are. And and then I guess, honestly, globally, how, how the laws work, right? Yeah, Where? absolutely. I mean, I yeah. think it starts with education. So you know, I, I am in the fortunate position now where, and you heard it here first, I'm actually putting together um, the remote legal playbook, which will be Ooh. a book I'm hoping to sort of strike the publishing deal this this year, and it will be out for distribution next year. And really, that's going to try to sort of debunk some of these myths or some of the misunderstandings that that are alive and well in the remote, flexible, distributed hybrid world yeah. with respect to some of those legal obligations. Now, what, there, um, oh, sorry, if I could just stop you there, because you said yeah. something very interesting. So what's the biggest myth out there? Well, the biggest myth, I'll tie it back to uh, the independent contractor and employee uh, situation. Okay. The biggest myth is that employees are not independent contractors. Independent contractors are not employees based on what the written agreement says. Okay. And the reason that it's a myth is because courts across the globe have held that if an individual displays certain factors or meets certain factors such as the employers providing all of the tools and equipment to complete their job duties and responsibilities, the employee or employers setting their work hours, um, the employer obviously is paying some taxes, and the employer more or less has full control over the type of work that they're doing. They are an employee. And so you have many situations where global employers are hiring independent contractors, but controlling the method and the output of their work. Hmm. In that situation, they're actually employees and they're actually owed severance pay. Interesting. Interesting. What if the independent contractor, you know, they, there's a signed agreement between the employer and the independent contractor that kind of actually uh, conflicts with what you're saying? Now, so, so that's again, that's the biggest myth, right? Yeah. So if you've got and if you've got an independent contractor agreement that takes it a step further. So rather than just having a title that says, this is an independent contractor agreement, you're an independent contractor and I'm an employer, but it goes a step further and says, you know, you've got 
free use of your own equipment and you're able to set all of your work hours and you're able to dictate what your duties and responsibilities are. If the evidence displays that that was not in fact the case, mm -hmm. then the employee or the individual still has an argument that they were an employee under the law. Got so it. The, I would say, you know, the, the overarching um, goal here is to ensure that the actual method of work that is being carried out is in accordance with what the law says is what an independent contractor or employee should carry out. Got um, it. The written agreement only holds so much weight. Got it. So the this podcast is about uh, the heroes of hybrid work. So I guess my next question is, does hybrid work complicate this in any way? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the biggest issue with hybrid work right now is that many organizations have certain policies and procedures that apply to in-office employees and apply to remote employees, but they haven't exactly accounted for when those two worlds meet. Um, and so hybrid work becomes a little bit more complicated, for example, because you've got different occupational health and safety concerns in the office versus at home. You've got different ergonomic concerns in the office versus at home, and you've got different privacy and cybersecurity requirements in office versus at home. And to take it a step further, when an employee is working from a co-working space or from a different jurisdiction, et cetera, your obligations and requirements completely change. And so although I did say that some of these hybrid employers do have remote work policies and at in office policies, a lot of them also do not. So they've sort of got, you know, one blanket employee handbook that applies to employees as a whole. What you're missing in that blanket policy is, and I'll give an example, we had a case where an Air Canada employee was working from home during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. She was a call center employee, and one day while going downstairs to get her lunch, she tripped and fell down the stairs. She sued Air Canada for failing to provide her with workers' compensation. Air Canada's position was that she had not met the terms of an occupational health and safety disability to qualify for workers' compensation. So essentially their position was that their policy said that a workplace accident occurred in the office. Okay. The Quebec judge actually found that the workplace incident had occurred in the course, in the course of her employment. Air Canada was the one that had mandated her work hours, and so she was entitled to workers' compensation. This is a situation where if Air Canada had had a certain remote work policy setting out her work hours, setting out her break hours, setting out, for example, in our remote work policies, we include a health and safety checklist that has the employee state whether the space is free and clear of trip hazards, sending in photos of the space, um, ensuring that it's away from, you know, certain electrical cables or there's no uh, spillage. So some employees, unfortunately, use their kitchen counter as their remote workspace. And so if Air Canada had had some of those protections in place, they may have had a leg to stand on. But because they were using one of these blanket policies for their hybrid workforce, it didn't hold any weight. That is a very interesting case. Wow. That I, I would not have thought that they would have lost that case. <laughs> yeah. Not, not in a million years. Wow. Very interesting. So something else that's on my mind, uh, as, as is on most people's minds, is AI. So I guess 
what do you, where do you think AI is going to play the biggest role in your world and in remote work law? So since we're, since we're talking cases, I will give you a very interesting Please. case. Yeah. Um, chat GPT is all the rage right now. We actually had a recent decision in Ontario where a very senior lawyer as chat GPT started to become more popular, had actually used ChatGPT to assist him with drafting a brief to submit to the court. When it came in front of the judge, it was discovered that a lot of the cases cited in there weren't actual cases. The lawyer, thankfully, did not have his license revoked, but he did have to pay a substantial fine into the court, and it's not the best way to go ahead in your career. Right. Um, so that's sort of the caveat that I'll put on AI. However, I will say that we use AI substantially at our firm for legal research, um, for collaboration with clients. So there's certain tools that you can use that allow both you and the client to collaborate on document and document review. We use it for case management. We use it for uh, documentary discovery. So oftentimes before you're going to discoveries, you will end up in a situation where you've got thousands of documents to review. The mm -hmm. AI can now help you with looking through the documents for relevance. You don't have to review each document, you know, a substantial amount. The AI can help you with that. We've yeah. also got AI that will take a boilerplate agreement and be able to red flag some of the clauses in there that are not standard for that type of agreement, whether it's an agreement of purchase and sale or any sort of contractor um, agreement. And so I think that the use of AI is very, very vital, um, especially right now in our industry and in various industries as mm -hmm. a whole. Mm -hmm. However, it has to be used mindfully, um, as I've mentioned. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, it's definitely a tool that assists myself with becoming much more efficient and delivering client tailored solutions on a very timely basis to my clients. Mm -hmm. um, it's also very, very helpful, for example, with legal research, chat GPT aside, I use a very helpful tool called Alexi, where I'm able to plug in the facts of my case. It used to be that I would have to uh, input the question that I wanted to ask the AI for the research. Now it generates a question itself based on the facts that I input, and it sends me a legal research memo within 24 hours. It's reviewed by human lawyers before it comes my way, and so it's very helpful okay. for assisting clients with sort of moving forward. That's my industry specifically. Yeah. In the remote work industry, I mean, I think we've seen the impact of AI just sort of, you know, explode. Um, you're dealing with a situation where clients... Uh, employees, contractors can sort of leverage AI to assist them with creating tailored solutions for whoever their client is, um, as well as just, you know, streamlining their work so that they're moving quicky, quicker and more efficiently. Nice, nice. So it's, it is a more of a productivity tool. Uh, yeah. So far, but you haven't seen it in any cases where things may have gone wrong, except for you know, a lawyer using, you know, incorrect, what are they calling it when AI hallucinations? I think AI hallucinations. I haven't even heard that, but that is amazing. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I heard that the other day and I thought that's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, so, uh, what can companies do better? You know, if you, if you, you know, could wrap it all up into, you know, a, your biggest piece of advice here, 
What can companies do better when it comes to hybrid work? Companies can do better by having the proper policies and procedures in place to ensure the viability of their workforce. If you want to avoid certain occupational health and safety concerns, for example, like in the Air Canada situation, companies should have proper remote work policies and procedures, hybrid remote work policies and procedures, as well as in-office policies and procedures to address their occupational health and safety requirements. Cybersecurity falls into the exact same place. So if you've got the proper policies and procedures, you can properly address cybersecurity. So it's really about having the right agreements. And, you know, with that, I also say in the independent contractor and employee situation, ensuring that you're sort of meeting your, your legislative and regulatory requirements, as well as what the case law says. Because, for example, in Canada, it's the case law that says if an employer controls an employee's hours of work, if it controls their job duties and responsibilities, if it provides them with their work equipment and tools, then they are an employee under the law. Doesn't matter what the written agreement says. So that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So we're, we're coming up on time a little bit here. So is there anything that we missed? Is there anything that you came to this interview wanting to say that I just didn't ask the right question to get it out of you? <laughs> well, I think that the questions were great, but the only thing that I'll add is that Remote Law Canada is going global. So we are actually getting licensed in various other jurisdictions. And I think that that's one of the things that will sort of help the education piece propel forward. So, you know, we're very knowledgeable in this space, but allowing it to sort of be accessible to remote employers across the globe will really be helpful. And so I love that. We're prepared to go global. I love that. And congratulations. So Thank where you. can people find you? So on my website, remotelawcanada.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, Tara, it was a huge pleasure to meet you and learn much more about the law, <laughs> which is, I, I think, one of the pieces that is missing from a lot of the conversations. So I really appreciate you sharing all these insights with our audience. I think they're going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 